Hello and welcome to another episode of the Annick Castle podcast. I'm your host Daniel Watkins, and on today's episode we're going back to the 1400s to hear about the role that castles like Annick played in the Wars of the Roses. I spoke to author and historian Dan Spencer, whose book The Castle in the Wars of the Roses is the first major study of the role that these fortifications played during the civil wars across England between the 1450s and the 1480s. Annick Castle, as well as other major Northumberland castles like Bamborough and Dunstanborough, had a part to play in the conflict, which the book goes into in fascinating detail. Here is our conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. I'm very happy to be joined on today's episode of the Annick Castle podcast by author Dan Spencer. His latest book, The Castle in the Wars of the Roses, was released in 2020. How are you today, Dan? Very well, thank you. I'm going to start with asking really a big question. What drew you to this subject of castles in the Wars of the Roses? It's <laughs> a good question. Um, in some ways, it stemmed from my first book, which looked at the castle um, at war in England and Wales. And in the course of researching that book, I realised that not really, you know, nobody really looked into the role of the castles in the Wars of the Roses. So my initial plan was to write an article on this topic. I gave a paper at an academic conference, which was noticed by um, a publisher, Pen and Sword. And one of the editors there contacted me and asked me if I'd be interested in you know, looking at it in more detail and writing a book on the subject. And it's one of those things that the more you look into a topic, the more you realise there is to say about it. And I found it was a very sort of rich topic to look into. And it's kind of surprising that people haven't really looked in it some detail, because, I mean, it's an interesting area and it's an aspect that people haven't really explored. Yeah, people have heard of quite a few of the famous battles and moments in the Wars of the Roses, but what the book really does is show how significant castles were on both sides of the war. Can you give us a little introduction to some of the roles that castles did perform? Yes, so I suppose the most obvious one in this context would be in siege warfare. I discovered that in the course of my research that there were at least um, 36 sieges of castles that place during this period and that is uh, almost entirely a big underestimate because the records we have aren't that great so if anything the total is much higher so it's partly their role in sieges so for example in controlling um, territory uh, they also played quite an important role in some campaigns in terms of serving as headquarters military operations which no doubt we're, we'll come on to a bit later. And even beyond the military context, I mean, they were very important to their owners. So, for example, um, places like Annick were very important to, um, let's say, the Percy family. Um, and that's true of many other castles across England and Wales. And they also tended to be the centres of big estates. So it was not merely in terms, they weren't just important in military terms, but also in sort of economic and social ones as well. Yeah, so they were still these huge imposing structures on the landscape almost everywhere you went in the country. Yeah, definitely. 
I mean, it's hard to get a sense of it now because we're so used to you know big, large buildings. But in that, in those times, it's pretty much castles and cathedrals and churches, which are you know, the big landmarks in in the landscape. Yeah, and we kind of think of the Wars of the Roses sometimes as being a little past the golden age of the castle, but you've shown that they do still have that big place in the imagination of the country as a position of power. But I'd like to ask a little bit more about siege warfare and what were some of the tactics that were being used by or against castles if they were in one of these 36 sieges? The main tactic used by the siege was typically to try to persuade the defenders to just give up. <laughs> um, either through a mixture of sort of intimidation or, um, you know, embellishment, as it were. Because, I mean, nobody wanted to go to the effort of attacking a place if they could avoid it. So typically the hope would be that you would, um, you, you know, rock up to a castle and you persuade the defenders, you know, it's not worth doing so. And um, surprising as it sounds, that often did actually work. So particularly in the aftermath of a battle, so for example, Pembroke Castle in the southwest of Wales, very impressive castle, then and as now. Um, in the aftermath of the Battle of Townton, the Lancastrians held it, they had a strong garrison, it was well provisioned, um, but the Yorkists way to persuade the garrison to surrender simply because even though they were in a good position to put up a siege, essentially there wasn't much incentive for them to carry on fighting because the war, as far as they were concerned, you know, they were on the losing side effectively, so they gave up. Now, of course, if that didn't work, the other main method was to, um, to blockade the defenders. So to surround them, cut off supplies, starve them into surrender. And that in turn, you know, often, eventually, defenders would decide, you know, if nobody was coming to rescue them, they'd have to give up. It's only really if those methods fail that they would go on to the more sort of drastic measures. So, you know, um, using artillery to damage the defences, trying to storm the place, let's say using, um, say, scaling ladders. But typically speaking, those more, I suppose, direct methods of taking a place were a bit more rarer. So probably the most high-profile example of that type of siege taking place in the Wars of the Roses is the Siege of Bamburgh Castle in 1464, in which the Yorkists did actually use artillery to damage the defences of Bamburgh Castle enough so they could storm it. And that was partly simply because the Lancastrian garrison to hold up there were you know, refusing to surrender. And in fact, the, the leaders, the commanders of Bamburgh Castle effectively had um, changed sides too many times in order to, um, you know, be able to safely surrender. They knew they were going to get executed anyway, so they didn't have much incentive for giving up. And uh, that was kind of it for Bamburgh's part in the war? Pretty much, yeah, yeah. So Bamborough, one of the major castles in Northumberland, alongside Annick Castle. Was Northumberland an active area for some of this siege warfare and for castles in the Wars of the Roses? Very much so. There's a, there's a few reasons for this. Um, one is Northumberland's quite a distance away from London. So the Yorkists, when they you know took over the Kingdom of England, they had some difficulties in imposing their control in you know the more distant regions. Uh, the other one was that Northumberland was a very militarised uh, borderland. So it was on the border with Scotland and ever since the late 13th century there have been lots of you know, border conflict with the Scots. So 
the, uh, the residents of Northumberland were very highly militarised and there was lots of castles which were kept in a good state of repair. Unlike many other places in England which, you know, they hadn't seen military activities for many years, so they weren't in quite the same state. And the other reason as well was because the Lancastrian rebels in Northumberland got a lot of support from the Scots as well as the French. And obviously, being on the border with Scotland, it was a lot easier for them to do so. So actually, in terms of England, you see most sieges of castles taking place in the Wars of Roses, really taking place in Northumberland and the sort of surrounding counties. As you note in the book, Annick Castle was frequently besieged in the 1460s particularly. What was going on at Annick during this time period? What made it be besieged so often? Yes, so as, I, as, you, as you mentioned, it was quite possibly the most besieged castle of the Wars of the Roses. That's a good claim to fame. <laughs> yes. I think, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of reasons for it. I think one in terms of sort of strategic terms. So Northumberland, like I said, was a border region. There's lots of castles. Comparatively speaking, not many urban settlements. So castles are perhaps you know, disproportionately important in Northumberland to, let's say, other, other places in England. The other is also that, you know, the symbolic importance of certain castles. So the fact that it was, you know, the ancestral seat of the, uh, the Percy Earls of Northumberland meant that the Lancastrians were very keen to get hold of it. And that's one of the reasons why you see it contested so much. Um, I think also the other reason as well is because both sides had difficulties in actually keeping control of these these castles, making sure they had enough supplies, because some of them had quite difficulties getting enough provisions into these into these castles. So that's one of the reasons why you know it's attacked so many times. And what made these attacks stop? How did it end for Anik in the Wars of the Roses? So effectively, Anik really gets involved in the Wars of the Roses from about 1461, following the Yorkist victory at the Battle of Towton, um, which is a pretty comprehensive victory won by Edward IV. But in certain places in Wales and in, in Northumberland, it was contested. And you see um, a few years of Lancastrian rebellions and sort of um, a trope of Northumberland going backwards and forwards between the Yorkists and the Lancastrians. Uh, but what happens in 1464 is that the Northern Lancastrians are effectively comprehensively crushed at the Battle of Hexham. And following that 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 Yorkist victory, most of the remaining Lancastrian-held castles in Northumberland uh, give up. The few remaining diehards in uh, Bamburgh, as I said earlier, the castle was stormed by the Yorkists. And one of the reasons why effectively it came to an end in 1464 is that up until that point, Edward IV had tried to pursue the policy of sort of reconciliation with some of the northern Lancastrians. He effectively tried to bring them on board and get them to join his side but after you know a few years of conflict he decided that clearly you know this wasn't going to work and he, he finally ended up having quite a few of them executed. The other reason was because effectively the French and the Scots you know stopped giving as much support to the Lancastrians so it effectively came to a rather bloody end in 1464. Yeah it definitely did. Who were some of the key individuals involved in what was happening around here. One of my favourites is Margaret of Anjou, the wife of Henry VI. She played a key part in taking Annick, losing Annick, getting it back again. 
But who else was involved in some of these big decisions and sieges? Margaret is a fascinating character who played you know, a really crucial role in not merely the sort of the conflict in Northumberland, but also in you know championing the Lancastrian cause in the 1460s and up until 1471. On the Lancastrian side, she played a very key role. On the Yorkist side, some very key individuals are uh, the two uh, Neville brothers. So um, the Nevilles were the great rivals of the Percys in the north of England. So it's perhaps not unsurprising that they took the principal role in sort of uh, fighting against them. So you have um, Richard Neville, who is the Earl of Warwick, known as the Kingmaker, who um, effectively was made Edward IV's lieutenant in the north of England. And he played a very key role in sort of crushing uh, Lancastrian resistance um, in the early 1460s. But there was also his brother, uh, John Neville, Marquis of Montague, and who eventually ended up having been given um, Annick Castle uh, after 1464. So they were kind of some of the key Yorkists on that side. There were also some, so I mentioned that Northumberland was quite a pro-Lancastrian area, but there were still some sort of pro-Yorkist um, members of the gentry as well. So you have um, Robert Lord Ogle, I think I pronounced that correctly, who was also constable of North Northam Castle uh, near the border with Scotland. And he played quite an important role in fighting against the uh, Lancastrians. The Percys themselves are around, but the Earl of Northumberland during this time in the early part of the 1460s is in prison in London. Did they manage to retain a presence while all this was going on around some of their most important possessions? The Earls of Northumberland didn't have a, a great time during the, um, the Wars of the Roses. So, um, so the second Earl was killed at the first battle at St Albans. In 1455, and then the third was killed at um, Towton, and that was pretty disastrous for them because up until that point, the third Earl had been pretty dominant in the north of England. So not just in Northumberland, but also in Yorkshire as well, where the the family had a lot of um, interest, and that effectively, I suppose, sort of decapitated them for quite a time. And there were sort of cadet members of the family who did play an active role in, um, you know, in trying to get control of Annick, but that was quite a um a big blow for them it's not really until after effectively the Neville's fall out with Edward IV that they end up getting reinstated and um, regaining the earldom of Northumberland yes and only after the fourth earl swore fealty to Edward IV and effectively changed sides which didn't work out too well for the end of his life when uh, loyal Yorkists did tear him to pieces when he collected taxes in 1489. Uh, but by that time, the Wars of the Roses were effectively over. Were castles still significant as the wars ended, or was this one of the last important periods for the castle in England? I think yes and no. And that's one of the things I was, I was sort of trying to do with my book, is to show that even though castles perhaps were of less importance than they had been earlier, in the Middle Ages, they still had military value. And in relation to the Wars of the Roses, certain aspects, uh, timeframes in the war, there are more important than others. So when you have periods of sustained conflict and control over territory, so as we get in Northumberland in the early 1460s, or uh, we also get in Wales at the, around about the same time, they are quite important. 
in some of the later stages of the Wars of the Roses, when you have very short campaigns that revolve just around battles. So, for example, in uh, 1471, where we get um, the battles, uh, for example, Barnet and Cheapsbury, or Bosworth in 1485, they're not that important. But I think they still retain their value. And I think one way we can see that is in the reluctance of commanders to sometimes use artillery. Uh, so, for example, in the 14... 1462 campaign, when the Yorkists were besieging uh, Annick, Dunsumbrough and Bamburgh at the same time, they had a lot of artillery with them, but they were very reluctant to use it, simply because they didn't want to damage these castles that could play such an important role in protecting the North of England against the Scots. So they still had some, they still definitely had some value. And later on in the 16th century, when there's further fighting with the Scots, um, some of these northern castles, you know, there's still some money spent upon them. I think one of the issues is that you have to spend money on them to maintain them, and particularly with changes in you know artillery and gunpowder weapons, they require more and more money to you know, adapt and uh, improve. So it means that certain places, like for example, Berwick uh, upon Tweed, tend to get the lion's share of the money and funding. Your book is available now from Pen and Sword. It's extremely well researched, as we've heard. There's so much detail in it, and it's also really helpfully arranged in a chronological order, which makes it great to keep track of how things are going in the wars while all of these events are taking place. After you finish writing the book, have you got any favourite castles to visit to kind of relive this period, apart from Anik, of course? Yes, of course. I mean, there are... There are many. I mean, some of my favourites include um, the Tower of London, that plays such a crucial role in the Wars of the Roses. I mean, not just in terms of sieges, but also in terms of, um, let's say, the fate of the princess in the Tower, for example. If you look in in relation to Wales, you've got Harlot Castle, which is it was the last um, castle in England and Wales to fall to the Yorkists. In terms of looking at castles, let's say, as, you know, residences, you've got places, for example, like Ragland, which belong to the Herberts, who are very important uh, supporters of um, Edward IV. And you also, a bit closer um, to where I live, you have, for example, Kirby Moxley, which is a um, late 15th century brick castle, um, which was built by uh, William Lord Hastings. But it was, in fact, never actually finished because um, Hastings fell foul of uh, Richard III and was executed, so the castle was never actually in time finished. And it sort of shows you, um, so it's, you know, the risks that um, castle owners ran in this period of, um, you know, you're on the wrong side of people. As the Percys themselves found out on numerous occasions. Yes. <laughs> so before we finish, uh, where can people find you online if they want to learn more? Yes, so I'm uh, I have uh, accounts on Twitter and Instagram uh, using the, the handle uh, Gunpowder Dan. And um, I also have a website, um, danspencer.info, where I also have some blog posts as well. Excellent. And the castle in the Wars of the Roses is available to buy now. Dan Spencer, thank you very much for joining us on the Annick Castle podcast today. Thank you for having me. The Castle in the Wars of the Roses is available to buy now from Pen and Sword Publishing. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, do pick up a copy of the book, but also subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Let us know what you thought on Twitter at Annick Castle or by emailing podcast at annickcastle.com and, of course, sharing it with your friends. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks' time, but until then, I've been Daniel. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>